And welcome back or welcome to another On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus and joined by my friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, another day, another lovely podcast. That's right. We're back, baby. Giving the people what they want, when they want it, how they want it, where they want it. Oh, so many wants it. So thanks for coming back. And I'm really excited because before we get into this topic that I think will uh, entertain people and hopefully inform people, we have a returning sponsor, Final Surge. How Um, cool is that? I know. It's great. So thank you, Final Surge. But more importantly, the reason we are glad to bring them back is because it's a really useful product. So for those who don't know, Final Surge is essentially a uh, coaching a platform where you can get on and have all your athletes in one place designate their training. It makes, you know, throw away with the old Excel sheets, Word documents, etc. Use Final Surge. It allows you to be more efficient in your programming for your athletes um, so that you can spend more time thinking about training and coaching. And also it allows for simple easy um, accountability on the athletes as they will be able to fill in how runs went, GPS is uploaded, make comments, all that stuff. So it makes you, again, where you don't lose sight of anything. Um, I use it for my own pro athletes, so highly recommend. Um, How long have you been using it for, Steve? Oh, gosh, probably three years now. Yeah, long-time user. Yeah. So, and and I kid you not, it's made a huge difference because before this, I spent a lot of time doing the Word doc stuff and I spent, you know, hours, you you remember this, hours yes. on Sunday, <laughs> you know. Saw it firsthand, yes. Writing out training, which is great, but now it makes it simple to do the tasks that like I shouldn't be spending a lot of time on, which is copying and putting it all in and more time on the like, refining define and and figuring out what's best for the athlete and the cool thing is they're offering a discount to everyone who listens we actually we have our own page on their website it's finalsurge.com slash on coaching one word and you get 10 percent off which is a great deal so if you're looking for a resource to better organize and streamline your training and communication check out final surge we'd appreciate it and so would they hey. Exactly. All right. What are we talking about today? Why you shouldn't train like a pro unless you're a pro. True story. <laughs> True story. So, yeah. So this is really interesting because if you look at uh, our training knowledge or our training, it it's almost all comes from the top down, right? It's, oh, the pros do this, the Pro coaches do this, so therefore the college athlete should mimic this, the high school athlete should mimic this, and the recreational athlete should do a watered-down approach to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at history, and rightfully or wrongfully, like the coaches who stand out are those who worked with um, largely professional runners. Um, so why is this? Why is this a bad thing, John? There's a multiplicity of reasons. It's complex, meaning multifactorial or a lot of inputs. It's like complex, I always like to remind people, it does not mean complicated um, or confusing. It just means you have to consider a lot of things at the same time. 
One of the biggest reasons I think we do this is because success leaves clues. And it's far too easy. We are mimic creatures, right? That's how we learn. We learn to walk through mimicry. We learn to talk through mimicry. Um, and we also like groupthink. The power of human uh, civilization to become what we've become has not been through the lone wolf or the lone ranger or the lone cowboy. It's actually been through collaborating in groups uh, effectively in empowering groupthink to help propel us forward. However, with professional athletes, this is where we have to be careful uh, exercising those virtuous things like groupthink and mimicry because it doesn't necessarily correlate in a positive way to the athlete with as without as much experience or training age. You know, you hear Vern Gambetta talk about this a lot. Uh, training age is really important as well as chronological age. Um, and that's why high school athletes who are in a high growth period, prepubescent to pubescent adolescence, even collegiate athletes whose frontal lobes and brains haven't fully developed till age 25, 26, should not be mimicking what the uh, Schleim Flanagan's did at age 33, 34, 35. What coaches and athletes should take away from is the progression and philosophy and the principles that those athletes use to get better and then understand how they, where they are in their timeline and time horizons fits into that greater spectrum. You know, Steve, I did my annual rereading of your brilliant and first book, which I still think, you know, is for the distance running nerd, one of the best contemporary resources out there, the science of running. And I'm always struck by how much lucid clarity you gave to the understanding that training happens on a continuum and it's on a spectrum. And there are certain uh, timelines and prerequisites that you can't uh, uh, forget or you can't overstep or skip. Otherwise, it's going to come to a, a big cost later on. So that's the key thing, I think, is, you know, what we'll explore here is why skipping those steps or leapfrogging them to want to, like, mimic what the pros are doing uh, is not a good idea because it will stunt your greater your development and your greater um, expression and also competency a year, two, three years down the road if you're a high school athlete, if you're a college athlete, even if you're a recreational athlete. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I uh, appreciate the comments on the uh, science of running. Um, I, I think that that is sometimes lost in this is that like, and we speak, we talk about this all the time is this individual development component and taking into consideration the the athlete you have in front of you mm. um is is something we talk about all the time but it can't be stated enough because i think we just kind of lose sight of that and as a coaching um as coaches like almost almost sometimes rightfully so in the sense that you know if you're a high school coach and you have 30 40 50 sometimes there's a couple teams with 100 plus people on them um, it, it's easy to, you know, just group everyone in together and be like, okay, this is what we need to do. Um, but we lose sight of that, that idea that you just mentioned there is that the t training ages differ so much, um, even among, uh, you know, well-trained athletes. I mean, look at, I look at the college athletes I get all the time coming in as freshmen 
And while they might run have run similar times, the training age of them are just vastly different. You know, I have um, a couple solid athletes, uh, freshmen this year, who, uh, you know, some came in and and they were barely doing anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the temptation often is to be, oh, you've run this, so you need to train like this. You know, there's. Um, there's some coaches in the past who I've interacted with who have always been, uh, who have almost uh, subscribed to this philosophy of, oh, okay, you run 405 for the mile. So your training needs to be like this to run slightly faster or to be like this. And it's almost seen as like a negative if, if, um, you haven't trained up to the, up to the, uh, the performance that, that you've given, right? And I think what that does instead is it shows you the individuality of it and that this notion of, you know, this is the training that indicates you to run 410 in the mile, 420, 430 or whatever is is a misnomer in it and actually does a great disservice to us. And I think that's where we've gone wrong in this idea of pro translating pro training to high school or college or recreational is we make this assumption that like, Oh, to run fast, you need to do this. So if this is your fast, like it doesn't matter if it's 13 minutes in the 5k or 16 minutes, like, you know, this is what you need to do. Yeah. I like to break it down kind of by category. So, you know, there's, um, in my world or how I think about it, there's a handful of different athlete categories. So first you have the developing athlete, right? And the developing athlete typically is going to be your youth and your high school athlete because they're developing uh, morphologically, uh, neurally, uh, like the endocrine, everything is developing in the athlete. You know, that person, the human being looks a lot different from age 10 to age 20. Um, just in natural hormonal body development processes. Then you kind of have the sub-elite athlete, right? And the sub-elite athlete can be that most collegiate athletes um, because they already have a pretty high training age, at least, you know, two to three to four years uh, between high school and college, sometimes more, maybe up to 10. Uh, And then you have post-collegiate athletes too who are sub-elite whom again, the training age might not be that high or the exposures might not be that high to different stimulus. So they're all bucketed in a certain category. And then you have the the truly elite athlete, which that really can't necessarily start, even though like you might say, oh, they ran a fast time and they broke this record and blah, blah, blah. It, you know, you get this one or two outliers and people love to point out the anecdotal outlier. Like Steve and I will, you know, tweet something out and someone be like, but this one person, this one time broke the rule. And I go, yeah, one, <laughs> one out of billions. We have to remember, like there are certain uh, developmental horizons. We can't, you know, uh, we can't skip steps necessarily, right? You wouldn't want to skip steps in the gestation period and pregnancy and just go from like month three to month six and just skip that step. There'd be some serious consequences for that. Same thing here with training. So that athlete, that elite athlete, while that's the most exciting and sexy and uh, heroic and um, quote-unquote mind-blowing because few people work with that athlete population and you can see what they do, we naturally want to mimic that success, but we can't 
can't unless we uh, have already the prerequisite foundation laid in the developing and in the sub-elite category. Um, I like to use Verkashansky's kind of classification of training. Uh, he talks about periodization a lot. And, you know, Steve talks about periodization a lot too in Science of Running. You know, all periodization is is a conceptual way for us to organize this artificial um, dosage of training. Uh, we have to remember exercise is medicine. All exercise, whether it's running, uh, you know, sprinting, weightlifting, uh, playing basketball, it is medicine. And we have to view it as such. And we can't you know, with medicine, you can't do too little, you can't do too much, you have to do the right amount dosage for the organism. So just as if as you wouldn't give a baby honey, right, because they're, the organism isn't ready for that stimulus of honey, same thing here, you wouldn't necessarily give a developing athlete a high volume, uh, steady six month block of running for, you know, 10 to 12 hours worth of workload, like say a Lydiard system would in the, in his marathon training phase, or as Jerry would with the Bowerman athletes in their preparation phase, it, the same thing translates, right? Um, but what we can do is incorporate those ingredients at our level, but you have to look at it as part of a bigger picture. So uh, Verkashansky talks about complex training being for the developing athlete. So what's complex training? Complex training is kind of like David Epstein's concept in range, this diverse sampling. So not specializing the training spe uh, specificity that you're doing. So what does that mean? Well, it means what we typically you know, promote and has become best practice and we know works well for a younger developing mind and body doing a little bit of everything, right? So yeah, doing speed work, doing, you know, sprint work, doing race pace work, doing long runs, doing weightlifting, doing plyometrics, doing a little bit of it all, right? By doing a little bit of it all in a progressive and intelligent and smart, consistent way, you are setting up as a high school coach, the foundation for the college coach. Now at the college level or the sub-elite level, um, you want to think about what Verkashansky calls complex parallel periodization or form. And that's where you're taking um, and rotating two big training effects, you know, uh, throughout a period or a phase of training. So this would be, you know, Steve and I talk a lot about the continuum of speed and endurance. So this is where you would say, okay, we're going to do a lot of endurance work, longer runs, pickups, steady states, but we're also going to complement that at the same time and alternate, modulate back and forth between that and some pure speed work. You know, the quote unquote, feed the cats, if you will, all the rage, right? Uh, in the popular uh, zeitgeist at the moment. Well, yeah, that stuff has its place and makes a lot of sense. And yeah, flying 30s, you know, fast 150s, um, but it's in balance, right? And then as we get closer and closer and closer to the actual competitive peak or the competitive peak period. It's kind of that uh, funnel model, right? That uh, periodization that Canova uses where we get a little bit more specific, a little bit more specific, but we're still balancing endurance and speed and getting closer and closer and closer and closer to more work at race space, more volume at closer around that race space uh, so that that athlete can fully realize through that complex parallel, uh, um, modality and modulation, their best effort on the given day. Finally, for pros, 
is what you know Verkhovsky calls uh, conjugate sequence form, or what has been called block training, or what I just call straight Bondarchuk, Lydiard, Jerry, you name it, where you focus on one thing the most all the time, like the like eighty percent, ninety percent of your training in this period is this. So Lydiard's the best example that we have, but I mean honestly. Like Jerry runs pretty much the same program type style with the Bowerman athletes, professionals, they coaches. Why? Because they've maxed out their stimulus um, at each one of these levels. And so they have to do a really high volume to get stimulus. And so this goes back into the mileage versus, you know, speed or like high, high volume versus low volume approach. Like, yeah, you should do high volume when you've maxed out everywhere else, but you focus on that quality. So you're focusing on, to say, like aerobic or fat max steady state development. Yeah, that is 90% of the training for six months. But even, you know, with Jerry, people don't understand. Like, then there's a phase where it's this anaerobic power or hard, fast interval phase where they're going for it. But because he's built the capacity with the athletes over years and years and years of this development, they can go for it with these, quote unquote, sexier high volumes of workouts. Because to that athlete, it doesn't seem like a lot of volume because they were doing 150 mile weeks, steady state or badger mile, jerry miles, whatever, in the fall for four months. So now you're like, oh, yeah, hey, we're going to do six miles at, you know, uh, 5K pace with three minutes rest in between. That doesn't seem like a lot of volume relative to where the athlete was. So I think we just have to understand how um, training can progress and what our job is as coaches at every level or every um, training age that we work with is we're trying to find the optimal stimulus. And if someone doesn't have a lot of exposure or familiarity with a certain number of stimuli, then some stimulus or any new stimulus is the correct stimulus and not in a high dosage. But if someone's kind of been maxed out, like your high school, college, and now younger pro athlete, like then you have to really focus on making that quality one or 2% better for a long, long period of time because that's the thing that's going to stimulate them to improve. And that's what we need, right? The body gets accustomed to stimuli and then we have to somehow change the stimuli or the intensity or the perception of that stress in some fashion through volume, intensity, density, what have you, to get some new adaptation. Otherwise, we're not going to get any return for our investment of work. Yeah, you know, I, thanks for outlining that because I think you made a couple good points in there that I'm going to piggyback onto. And the first is this idea of setting the foundation for next level um, mm -hmm which I think is incredibly important, something as coaches we intuitively know and do all the time. Because as you, you rightfully mentioned, when we talk about periodization, when we're, when the reason we use periodization is because we're setting the stage for the next period, right? Yes, yes. We're, we're, we're saying, okay, we need some good aerobic work because that serves as this quote-unquote base to do a little bit faster work. Or we need to develop pure speed. Why? Because we need this foundation of pure speed to develop our, our speed endurance or specific endurance or whatever it is. So, like, 
regardless of what periodization scheme you use, you function on the idea that we need to do some things that set the stage for things that we will do later, mm -hmm. right? So, so we're really good at looking at that on, a, on, we'll say, like a micro season to season level, right? But if we zoom out in a career, we're not so good at looking at that. Right. But it it makes logical sense that that as a 15 year old, 16 year old, 17 year old, we need to do some things that set the stage if we're going to run as a 22, 23 year old or whatever it is. Right. And th that makes logical sense. Right. So there are things from a physiological standpoint, uh, from a biomechanical standpoint, from a neuromuscular standpoint that set the stage. And as you rightfully pointed out, like Dave Epstein's uh, book range is a great example of this in the sporting context as well as in life. But the reason diverse sampling works in, in the sporting context is because it sets the stage to be able to have the athletic ability um, and capacity and skill set to, uh, to develop off of once we get into this specialist stage. Right. So, Thinking about this on the larger scale of what are the things that you need to do at different ages kind of to develop. And this is no different than the school system. You know, we have to teach reading and writing before mm -hmm. we move on to actually studying too much of, of, of other things. Right. We have to teach um, algebra before we go into calculus. Um, there's certain we'll call them prereqs that hopefully you understand that help us develop later on. So that's, that's point number one. And, and sometimes you get some pushback in this from high school coaches who say, well, not all of my athletes are going to go on and run in college or college athletes. Not all of my athletes are going to go run professionally. Well, of course not, but you're not all of your, you know, your, um, your sixth grade history students are going to go on to get their PhD in history. Mm -hmm. but we still need to st set the stage and give them a base knowledge. So if your high school kid and isn't going to grow on to run in college, well, then what, what role does running serve? Well, it serves as a basic entry point of lifelong fitness and developing that, right? And a basic entry point of develop developing health, well-being, the ability or the to or the benefits of taking something seriously, putting all your effort into it, learning what, what, what it is to like work hard, suffer, fail, all those things. So while they might not run in college, you're still setting the foundation for something. And same for college to pro. And the quickest, a tangent aside and interject here, Steve, is I just recently had my physical, I'm 36 and a half years old, you know, um, a run anywhere from about an hour to two hours, six to seven days a week. I do sprinting, I do lifting, like I'm doing just general fitness stuff that I find enjoyable as, hey, this is my time to disconnect and do me, right? So what are the, you know, CBC and blood profile look, panel look like? Well, my hematocrit's 45, hemoglobin's 15, my cholesterol, the good cholesterol's high, the bad cholesterol's super low. Like, the blood work is phenomenal for being, you know, unfortunately, a 36-year-old in um, modern America. Because I'm active, 
and I've had 20 years of being active. There's been some intermittent periods where like, yeah, I haven't ran or I didn't take care of myself when I got burnt out. But even then, my body could shoulder that burden of being, you know, sedentary or stressed out or burnt out or overweight or even not taking care of myself with the amount of food or sleep I was giving, but have this resiliency at a young age to bounce back. I mean, if I looked at like my blood for say a elite or sub elite athlete I work with, I go, this person's ready for success. This person, you know, has all these good markers. Okay, we're ready to go. Like ferritin is kind of low. Like it was only, you know, 56, but I'm not trained to be this marathoner. So I don't need that. But just as a general health and well-being for the life trajectory I'm going to live, I'm so thankful that I happened to fall into track and field and cross country in high school. It wasn't on my radar. I was a, I thought I was going to be a soccer player, basketball player for life. But my soccer coach was a track coach, got me out for running. He says, hey, you're pretty good at this. And it became who I, who I am. So like when high school coaches dismiss it and say, oh, well, we got to get squeezed everything out because we just, they're not going to, you know, progress to higher level. You don't know. <laughs> you really don't know. So you might as well take the intelligent approach and set them up for long-term success by giving them a foundation for if they do want to come back to running, Mount Ultra Trail, marathons, you know, master's track, you know, as a way to live a lifestyle, they have that foundation at that critical, critical developmental age of their, you know, adolescent life. A hundred percent. And I think that's something that, again, sometimes we lose sight because it's all about performance and all that stuff uh, when you're uh, coaching and stuff like that. But, you know, it's it's setting that stage that is the, the most important part and, and zooming out. And another point that you, you made there, um, well, before that, if you look at <laughs> even um, – coaches like Lydiard and who were pure or who were pioneering these things, like that's what he recognized. And that's why his famous like aerobic block of running came into play because he recognized that his athletes needed this aerobic block before they went into their high, uh, uh, you know, anaerobic block or high speed block of, of training. And, you know, that's what we're looking at, um, at is what do you need? What are your, prerequisites and then the other part that i think that is really important that um should be talked about more is is what's maxed out yeah you know you you mentioned like adaptation there and that is the key and i'm sure you do the same process as a coach but you know john and i having worked with some post collegiates for you know the better part of a decade now um a very a variety of ones is one of the advantages you get is you get to see what every other really good coach in the country is doing mm-hmm. right because you get you get athletes from this coach and they give you your, your log because not because you want to see what the other coach is doing but because you want to see hey like what has this athlete done before and like what's worked and what hasn't so you get to see everything from um, practically every coach but you know what all i i ever do especially when you're looking at athletes who are 25 26 27 into their 30s right who have been doing this for a long time and i know john you're similar is when you get those training logs what you're looking for is holes mm-hmm. right you're saying hmm this athlete has done a b c and d but they haven't done f yet yep. you know mm-hmm. and f might be 
you know, doing something as simple as simple as like, hey, they've never done flying 30s or hey, like this person has done a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of high volume, easy running, a lot of like, quote unquote, lactate threshold stuff, but they haven't done much of this like marathon pace stuff or all of their stuff is steady and there's no progression in it or there's no variation in pace. Or, you know, uh, the Allen Webb school of training, there's no systematic, you know, understanding of like, hey, races aren't just time trials. So we need to inject some like, hey, we need to go this rep, you know, and test things mm-hmm. out. And and that's what you're looking at as a coach is, is all you're doing there is looking at these holes to fill. And those holes are very simple of, okay, where have we not pressed the adaptation to the highest amount. And that's the great thing of when you're looking at a high school or college athlete is high school athletes, practically zero of that adaptation is pressed out. So you're looking at what doses do I need to do give to set the foundation and like how far do I need to press these different components? Because for some athletes, you might need not need to press them very far. You know, like uh, I'll give the quick example, then turn it over. But Ryan Doner, when I was uh, working with him in high school, um, we didn't we did a lot of aerobic stuff, but we didn't need to press the volume of the workouts very much because, like, this kid had an aerobic engine that was just naturally off the off off the chain. So, like, doing you know three by mile or four by mile at you know ten k down to five k effort was enough for him. You know, because mm-hmm. it's like he had that natural capacity. So I'm still going to develop it, but I don't need to press it because like it's, it's there and, and at a point where it's needed for what he was trying to accomplish. So doing that kind of evaluation as a coach is one of the, the best things that you can do. And that's also why like the training for every athlete should change every year. Uh, Coaches, we sometimes are, guilty of, you know, like anyone just relying on our strengths, what we feel comfortable with, what we've had good results. And so that's why you see a lot of times when, you know, coach athletes switch from a coach to a different coach with radically different philosophies. It's typically the improvement that that athlete sees in that first year is because of the new stimulus uh, of that new philosophy. If the prior coach was kind of quote unquote set in their ways, right. Or had their biases, they couldn't get over. You know, I've never written a the same training plan. I've never repeated anything. It's always because every athlete every year is a brand new athlete in the regards of that they have had a lot of different changes, whether they've been injured, whether they had the best year of their life, whether they, you know, were coming off illness. I mean, it's always changing. So I'll give three quick examples, um, you know, because I've made a life, uh, you know, in a reputation based on taking uh, diamonds in the rough, people you've never heard of and getting them to be, long-time, sustainably consistent competitors on the domestic circuit. These are people who weren't NCAA champions. You know, people were off the radar. Like, basically, I always call them, like, the orphans. No one else wanted them. So, yeah, you got stuck with me. But what we did over time was we figured out how to get these, you know, kind of marginal collegiate or sub-elite or collegiate athletes to a place of sustained competitiveness at the – post-collegiate level so you can make a little bit of living have a little bit of fun and you know live this life for several more years and not be delusional about it but be competitive about it so first to say daniel herrera right 
he was coached by Forrest Braden at UCLA. And Forrest is a really good co- coach, a guy smart. Forrest runs a very highly aerobic focused program. So there was lots of long and strong steady runs, threshold runs. And he, Dan got pretty good off that, man. He ran 339 in um, college off that type of training. But he only, but it was intermittent, his competitiveness. And so we identified, well, you have a familiarity with this. You've done this for two, two and a half years. It had some success. But Dan is still, you know, and he came to me like, oh, man, I can't sprint. I can't do hills because, you know, my calves get sore. I get Achilles things. Like he had all these barriers. And I was like, well, why don't we go the exact inverse and really emphasize rate of force development, speed and power, get you strong, get you, you know, my mechanics, get you moving well. You know, it was with that um, prior foundation set with Forrest that the work I could do, this lower volume but higher intensity work, could propel him to be a guy who now every year breaks four minutes in the mile when his you know call, his mile best was one or two, like 402s, 405s. But every year he breaks four minutes, like indoor, outdoor, on the road, you name it. Like the guy can just run sub four, you know, for eight months out of the year. It's pretty cool. I wish I could run one sub four, <laughs> you know, I mean, let alone five or six in a year, but we recognize what the um, differentiating stimulus was or the untapped stimulus was. And we uh, then run all in on that and we keep changing it even now. Right. So now we're reintroducing steady running back into his programming because we've kind of like, okay, gotten really, he's gotten really familiar with fast, short stuff, high acidosis stuff. Now the next thing is to interject more volume, but we can't necessarily put more volume of speed in because we kind of max that volume threshold out. Same thing with acidosis stuff. We can't put more volume in. We can get a little faster or increase the density by shortening the rest component in between uh, rep and rep in a workout or workout to workout. But now we recognize, okay, we don't need to do you know, a lot of hard tempo running, just, I, I call it steady running. You know, Mike Smith called it sub T sub threshold running. You just run at a comfortably hard effort. That's really kind of, if you're into the zone, uh, uh, systems like zone two, that fat max burning system where you're using fatty acids as your primary fueling substrate based off your heart rate or whatever you want to conceptualize it. And so it's really approachable. It's not unapproachable for Dan because he's gotten accustomed to not doing that work for the last couple of years. You know, Tara Wong is another good example, right? I inherited her from the Oregon Project, which runs, as we know, uh, very high, high intensity all the time because, as we know, it might not be actually real to be able to sustain that without, you know, some type of supplementation, um, legal or illegal, is the thing was she needed more recovery. She was like, Oh yeah, I was told I have to run all my easy runs at six thirty pace or faster. You know, I do these great workouts, like crazy workouts, but then on race day, I couldn't express that fitness because I was just completely under recovered. Right. So she was really well trained, but really under recovered. So we made it saying, look, we don't have to do hit any home run workouts. They just have to be consistent bees. Your recovery runs need to be eight minute pace or slower. Like I put an anchor time on it, like slower, like eight or, and she was like, I don't know. I don't like to just trust me. Like, this is what you need. You need to get recovered. And lo and behold, you know, during that period I was working with her, her racing times just took off, right? Her ability to perform took off because we recognized she was 
under-recovered, so we need to emphasize recovery and keep her steady and consistent and healthy for her to express her natural um, talent and competitiveness. And then, you know, the final ones, uh, say Eleanor Fulton, right, who I worked with for three and a half years, it's, you know, uh, with Metcalf at U- University of Washington, there was a lot of emphasis on two things, like kind of these like ra- 3K mile race pace intervals, and then these like uh, longer-ish four or five-mile tempo runs, right? So that was what she had been subject to for five years, and it got her to a certain point of competitiveness, 438 in the mile indoor, you know, what have you, but it didn't get her over the hump. So he said, okay, you haven't been doing rate of force development work, plyometrics, lifting, short, fast sprints, uh, you know, not a lot of um, acidosis tolerance. So there are all these holes, right? And immediately it's like, we address these holes and, you know, in a year's time, boom, she comes outdoors and runs, you know, four, always running 412, like for the 15 or first outdoor year out as a pro, 412, 412, I mean, it's like seven or eight times in different circumstances, very consistently competitive uh, for her level of development that year. You know, slowly and surely we changed what she was able to do to, you know, the last fall I was working with her, a lot of steady running, a lot of, you know, um, longer intervals, like four times two mile at 530 with, you know, two minute recovery, right? And then she runs nine flat in the 3k indoor, right? Holding off a kicking and coming back from pregnancy, Shannon Roberry. So it wasn't necessarily about this is my way of training. It's about what is the new and fresh or underemphasized stimulus that we can um, really, really get a lot of bang or return for a buck in based on who the athlete is and what their goals are. But that's where you do as a coach have to do your homework and be comfortable with every facet of training, every principle of training, so that when you see the gap, you know how to apply and where to apply um, the, st- the new st- stimulating agent to the athlete's development and betterment. Because we have to remember as coaches, we're influencers at best. We can't control how someone's going to respond to a stimulus. We can't control their motivation. We can't control their recovery. But we can influence it through what we expose them to, not only on the workout sheet, but also the culture and atmosphere we create that esteems this growth mindset and saying, hey, these are the best practices. And I think that's where we need to look to the pros more and more and more is not what are they doing for work, but what are they doing for rest and recovery? What are the best practices? What are they prioritizing? How are they prioritizing their sleep, their nutrition, their hydration? Not the Normatec, the, you know, the vibration recovery, the cryotherapy. Like we don't need to prioritize, look at those things. We need to look at the really big rocks, as Dan Path calls it, of sleep, nutrition, and hydration, and what they're doing at the professional level, because those are good habits to adopt at any level that can actually be the difference maker in becoming a, you know, a more elite at your level, whether it's recreational, sub-elite, collegiate, or high school. Yeah, you know, those are some great examples with uh, Tara, Eleanor, um, and and I, you know, I think we all have those, and I think that that is like 
especially as you get athletes who are experienced, and we're talking about professional athletes here, but the same process occurs if you're working with a recreational or sub elite athlete, you know, um, uh, I'll give you a, a quick example and go on to another topic. But, you know, we have uh, one of uh, my volunteer assistants at Houston, uh, Zavin O'Brien. Like he was a, a 151, 3, a 151-800 guy, like 351-1500 guy in college, like went on, uh, is a professor, all that stuff, is in his early 30s and then asked if he could volunteer to help with um, – help with our team uh, a couple of years ago and uh, he turned himself into a 105 flat kind of half marathon guy uh, who is knocking on the door of the trials in, in a couple of races and that's coming from an 800 primary background and you know when he came out he's like hey can you ha- help me figure things out and I'm like okay it's very simple like you're an 800 guy who's done a lot of high intensity stuff. And even though you're in your early thirties, like that natural ability is there. So just do enough to maintain that, but like then do this, this, you know, high end aerobic work that you haven't really tapped into as much and just like take the time to do it. Mm-hmm. And at first he really struggled with it because like he'd never done some of the like, you know, longer tempo stuff and stuff like that. Um, with consistency and but over time he adapted and he became really good at it and you know the other example of this although i don't know her training really well is you know you look at someone like melindy elmore who -hmm. just set the canadian uh national record in the marathon who you know john and i remember back from our stanford days of as a 1500 meter runner Mm -hmm. um and you know in between her track career um and her recent marathon career she she took on like long triathlons right and you sit there and you're like how does a 1500 runner like transform into like a great marathoner well a lot of times what happens is we we um we hold ourselves back in the sense that we classify people as oh you're a 1500 runner and that means like you need to do abc and like hit this high intensity stuff and this stuff here and then neglect this stuff over here because it's not as important for your race. But for a, a large uh, number of us, like the bat, the body is remarkably adaptable. And, you know, the other example of that is Sarah Hall, who came out of college run, you know, Terrence Mahon, who's a great coach, had her running the 1500 out of college, mm-hmm. right? Um, 1500 and steeplechase. And now she's turned herself into a great marathoner. And the reason she's able to do that is just exploring, continue exploring these, uh, things that routes of adaptation she hasn't done. But the other part of it is that Sarah and Melinda, like also established this good foundation of, uh, speed and development that they were able to extend off of. So you think of as like setting her stage for the second, act of her running career right that transition and did she know she was going to be a great marathoner no not not until she kind of got into it and got the feel for it but like it's exploring those things that you haven't done before or the areas where um the areas where that adaptation is not 
tapped out. And as distance coaches, we need to think, you know, I almost look at it, the comparison I like to give is, is we need to treat it in the same way that we treat an injury, right? Mm -hmm. So if your knee hurts, right, you don't just look at the knee and be like, oh, you know, this is the, this, this right here is the problem. No, a good physical therapist, a good athletic trainer, a good coach, like, what do you do? You look above and below, right? Mm-hmm. You say, hmm, is this knee problem coming from maybe how we hit the ground and how our foot is loading up? Or, hmm, is it coming from like hip instability of, at the hip? And you're looking at, okay, where are the weak links that might be contributing to this area being overused, right? The same thing has to happen in training, right? Where we have to look above and below and be like, hmm, where are the adaptations that that we haven't maxed out yet, right? Where are the areas where we haven't trained it up to a high degree where we might be able to, you know, um, get rid of this kink in our pipe that allows us to to make it to on to the next level. And then the one other thought that is kind of tangential to this, but reminded me of a podcast we did with uh, Lynn Zakowski on his, on his book. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. somewhere in that, I remember um, in Lynn's book, he had this great phrase where he said that, you know, we shouldn't treat kids like short adults. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, he was talking about, uh, you know, playing different sports and all that stuff and the intensity of it. But I think that still, that applies perfectly to training as well, as we shouldn't treat high school kids as short pros, right? It's, it's, it's not dumb it down, like water down the, the volume and intensity a little bit and do the same workouts because they're not, they're not developed aerobically, anaerobically, neurally, biomechanically, all these things to, to the same degree. So getting out of that mindset of like, oh, you're a short pro, I think is something to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, you know, you made a great point when uh, the science of running, Steve, and just talking about why are the East Africans so dominant in distance running compared to, say, in you know the current era um, and at a quote unquote young age, right? How do they, how do they express such dominant ability young? Um, you know, what we think is young, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. You know, people are like, oh, well, they, they lie on their birth certificates, whatever. And yeah, there may be some of that. I agree. But, you know, I, I go back to what just happened, say, in Dubai, right? Ten Ethiopian men, ten in Dubai ran sub 207, ten. You know, vapor flies or no vapor flies, whatever. In the last three years, one American man, one in three years has ran sub 207, right? And that's Galen Rupp. And we have to look at like, Oh, well, it's da, 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 da. the aerobic horizons and adaptation takes far longer than we think. We're talking tens of years, not tens of months or tens of weeks, tens of years. So if a athlete is very active in their youth, like say a lot of these Africans are walking and running and, you know, transporting themselves to and from school every day, like highly give us velocity, right? Six miles back and forth every day, like, He's doubling every day, six miles as a six-year-old, just running to and from school, <laughs> you know, for 10, 12 years. It's really informal, but it's good foundational work. 
Uh, same thing with like Sammy Wanjurno. People forget about Sammy Wanjurno because, you know, his life ended prematurely. But I always say he would be the one to break two without any special shoes, like normal flats. Because how fast did he run? He has a world junior record in the 10K. You know, 2640, it's better than the American record, right? Um, because, again, we have to understand the aerobic developmental horizons just take longer to express. So Mandy Elmore, Sarah Hall, people who later chronologically are having success at the marathon are now exp- are good case studies, I think, to express the fact that because they set themselves up with years, decades of uh, aerobic, you know, training that included a lot of aerobic activity, as well as a foundation of neuromuscular coordination, speed, rate of force development work, young, 15. That's why they're able to express it. Shelby Hulian is another great example. Spurner in high school, now American, you know, uh, record holder in the 15 and 5K. Because again, it, she, they, she didn't skip the steps and that aerobic you know, capacity takes so long to express. I think we forget that. Um, it's not the short path is always, yes, you get a lot of big gains really quickly with neuromuscular and speed work because it's just really the brain is the thing that you're changing and, uh, the adaptation and like, uh, the morphology of the muscles and et cetera. So that's why you see like, say sprinters in America express really early, like Noah Lyles, right. Or Usain Bolt, you know, these are early expressions from a chronological standpoint, because they've been um, subject to a lot of high intensity or they're just born wired, uh, just have better signaling and um, rate of force development because of that signaling of the nervous system because of their central and peripheral nervous system. So they get expressed earlier. That's what I, you know, I, why I encourage distance coaches at every level to understand like maybe 10 years from now, they're not going to, um, make an Olympic team, but they might be ready to make the Olympic trials. And this is what's always fun about the Olympic trials and the marathon. 500 women made it this year, almost 300 men. That's pretty freaking cool. And you know what? Most of those people, not champions in college. Most of those people, not champions in high school, right? But they stuck with it for decades and now they're enjoying it. Or even like, you know, you're working with an Olymp- a true Olympic hopeful in Roberta, like, she took some time away from running, right? And now at age 40, 41 as a master, you're like, how is a master's female even in the conversation to make an Olympic team? We've never heard of her, you know, but it's like, because I think we just don't know yet how long developmental horizons are in the distance running uh, because the lifestyle was cut short um, in like the the 19 throughout the 1900s because like at age 35 like you're considered old and you're done and you have a kid and like sleeps you know issue and you start working full time and you just you're done with it right so you weren't able to see it through but now we're knowing like hey it, being a master's in the endurance world you know whether it's marathon and ultra and further might not actually be a bad thing it might actually be an asset because you're able to utilize and express those decades and decades of conditioning that you had prior, um, prior to this age. Yeah. I think that I, I, you know, and I think that it's also like an example of that is that if you look at sprinters, you know, development from high school to, to college and even to pro it's, it's a little easier, not, 
not 100%, but it's a little easier to predict because the primarily dominant, you know, avenue for getting better is uh, neural or biomechanical changes, right? Yes, mm-hmm. some strength changes as well, but those are the things. And those can be developed. Those are what you call maybe, we'll call them fast development um, compared to uh, the long-term development of the aerobic system, right? And that doesn't mean that, you know, people get this wrong and they say, oh, the aerobic system, we need to develop. So that means like run, you know, 90 mile weeks um, from the age of 15 or whatever. Yeah. No, it means it, it, it means it needs to be part of this development plan over a long period of time, right? Over a sustained long period. And if you do it consistently over time, then your body will adapt, right? It, and it can't be this thing that you neglect and say, oh, you know, like, the aerobic stuff doesn't work. We're just going to do a lot of intervals because that's going to get us better. It's like, no, you need, you still need to do the interval work, but like consistent aerobic work over time is why, what gets us better. It's the, it's the same reason why, you know, even during the heart of the season, distance athletes do easy or steady runs, right? Why? Because it might help them during that year, but it's more of, okay, like we can't neglect this stuff for two months during our sharpening and peaking phase um, because like it's so important to have some sort of mild aerobic stimulus nearly year round um, mm-hmm. to keep things going. Now that doesn't have to mean like do aerobic stuff, do uh, or do easy runs and high volume, but you need some sort of aerobic stimulus to keep that development going because it's not just paying off now, it's paying off you know, years down the road. A master that's Rob Connor at UP, right? We, I always talk to Rob and, you know, you look at um, people who transfer in or uh, people who, uh, you know, are say foreign born athletes who compete at NCA at the cross country level. And, you know, uh, he, you know, he calls, I forget what he, the exact words he uses to call them, but uh, you know, oh, hired or hired guns. Right. Um, and so the reason they're hard guns is because these fifth year transfers or these highly competitive international athletes, they've already had a really long period of competitive um, uh, racing experience at bigger stages, supposedly, and or a long period of development of training at a high level or higher levels, cascadingly higher levels. But you also have homegrown guys, right? And I think that's what Rob's a master of and has proven time and time again. You know, on his championship teams, he only had a couple fifth-year seniors who transferred in or international athletes, only a handful, like one or two. Like, he's no fool. He knows you need a couple of those hired guns, so to speak, to um, help your competitiveness at the NCAA collegiate um, levels at the highest level. But three or four of those guys were homegrown. And these are guys you never heard of, guys who are just, you know, hey – Top four at state in Washington, uh, you know, didn't even make uh, like the state track final, you know, for Oregon. Like, just who are these guys? Well, what happened was they expressed themselves their, you know, fourth and fifth year because Rob knows he needs to um, redshirt guys because what are they doing for four to five years? These younger guys, he, you know, he's just, they need more time. He's like, development takes time and they just need to spend time 
getting better and doing the things that matter most for them to be contributors their fourth or fifth year. And if you go to Rob's office, he has his projected teams for cross country based on his current uh, roster of athletes projected all the way out four years, five years in advance. So, you know, he knew, he knows what he's going to have at Stillwater on the roster without recruits. He knows what he's going to have, you know, uh, at, uh, you know, Terre Haute or back at Louisville or whatever, right? Because he's counting on like these guys to just put in the work, you know, run a long run every Sunday for four years, year round. And that's going to be a thing that's going to help their long-term development. He doesn't lose sight of that. Um, and that's, I think, really rare to do because it's easy to lose sight and track. Like, oh, we need to get fast, fast, fast. And, you know, we tend to swing in polarities, right? And think in absolutes as if speed is compromised by endurance work or endurance work, um, you know, stunts or stagnates speed. It's the lack of exposure under the correct circumstance that is the limiting factor, not the thing itself. Meaning, you know, doing, saying you're doing speed work, when you're fatigued is not really speed work because the brain can't go and the body can't go and contract at max velocities and max force because you have fatigue versus saying, you know, um, just doing, just saying, oh, we're just going to do a lot of jogging and easy running, easy running being defined as 25 to 30% of your marathon pace and calling that good. Like you're going to get fast. That's not going to happen either. But that's the thing. Rob knows this consistent variety or diverse sampling that he offers these young guys. They become beasts and monsters. Like Logan Orndorff's a really good example. This is a guy who, you know, they weren't so sure about his first two years. He wasn't really that competitive. You know, he's like 27, 38 K on a, you know, a flatter 8 K course here in the Oregon area. The guy, you know, became a contributing member of both their championship, uh, recent champion or uh, trophy teams at the NCAAs, and he broke four in the mile, the first and only pilot to date to break four, the last guy you'd pick, (laughs) you know? Um, Why? That guy, five years, you know, really rarely uh, missed a beat, just put in the work, even when he did get hurt, he continued to work his aerobic foundation with cross training and do whatever his coach asked him and took advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. Beautiful, phenomenal story as it should be. And like, if you're a high school coach or a college coach listening, I think we have to just remember, like, it's your job at high school to expose them to a lot of variety of stimulus. So like, I call it like the, the 10% rule. There should be, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, you know, small dosages that add up to your 100%. So that's 10 different things you're constantly, sub, you know, s- subjecting them to. And then at college, it gets to be more like the 20 or 25% rule or 25% of this and that and that. So four to five things are these big rocks that you're really trying to develop. And then when Steve and I get them as like, you know, sub elites or, you know, professionals, it's, it's really like, the 50-50% rule where it's like, we're going to work on this and we're going to work on that because that's really where we can get you a lot better because you've already kind of had a lot of frequent exposure to all these other things. Yeah, that's a good way to conceptualize it. And I think a good way to, you know, uh, maybe wrap up this idea is that it's really applying this long-term thinking to instead of uh, uh, put the fires out kind of coaching um yeah. i put mm-hmm. put the fires out as like okay where's the biggest bang for a buck to get this athlete to run as the fastest mile he can in in three weeks time 
you mm-hmm. know yeah. um we we all can do that kind of coaching um it's it's uh <laughs> it's pretty straightforward you know all that stuff but i i think the difficulty in coaching comes when you're looking at athletes like you said with uh, that rob connor uh, developed or athletes you know i've had you know i've got some now who i'm projecting three years down the line right where i'm saying oh this person is this now but you know if we can develop this this and this like they'll be able to do this you know um a good example maybe to wrap things up is we had an athlete uh last year Brittany gonzalez who came in as like a a state champ in new mexico in the 800 and ran some decent 400s and stuff like that and ran not that good in cross country um and you know she came in and like yeah we trained as like an 800 runner the first year but like i saw like her potential was going to be as as a miler you know and over time like she chipped away chipped away chipped away and then you know by her senior year got third at conference in in the mile um and i remember talking and she ended up being a very solid cross-country runner for us and the joke became she was like man freshman freshman year britney like would not believe you know the new cross-country britney that's here and you know i thought back and i'm like yeah but i had conversations with my you know my assistant coach at the time of being like oh this girl has like got the goods to be pretty good and like the the mile and up um i don't know if she has if we can develop that basic speed to be like a, a very strong 800 runner we'll still develop speed but i don't know if we can get there so like let's make this the focus and you know it's great when it works out but i think having that kind of long-term approach and then also understanding that development just takes time sometimes mm-hmm. is it's not this quick rush thing that like, oh, you're going to come in and do this, even for your really good athletes, you know, even for your high school stud, all American, you know, footlocker finalists, whatever, um, development still takes time to get them to the next level, even if they've run those performances, you know, even if they're a low four minute miler in high school, doesn't mean that they're developed um all the capacities they need to to compete with others who are running similar times in college. It's a different ballgame. Or even I think uh, Brian Braz is a good example too. I remember when you first recruit him and you're like, yeah, I got this, you know, I think we, I think we're going to land this kid and get this kid to UH and he's going to be really good. I think, you know, maybe by his like senior year, fifth year, he, he, he might be in the hunt to win an NCAA title and division on the track. Like, you know, if we, if I don't mess it up, he has a shot. And I mean, you called that five years out. <laughs> you know, I mean, Brian was in the hunt, right, to win that NCAA title in the steeple before he, you know, tripped over, you know, heartbreakingly that uh, fourth to last barrier. Uh, but I mean, the uh, the accuracy and patience you had, Steve, I think, is a long-term case study to the patience and testament to this fact that, like, you didn't say you have to be really good right away you said look it's going to take four to five years but i mean he left what setting almost every distance record or every distance record at uh and putting himself in a position to almost win an ncaa title like phenomenal versus no one else called that or recruited that heavily but you saw something there and maybe you can talk about it and we'll wrap it up with this like 
what did you see there that made you make such a bold statement with striking accuracy? <laughs> we all get lucky sometimes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, truth be told. <laughs> um, you, you, you know, it, 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 with Brian, it was a combination of things. Is is um, a a I thought like his approach and his attitude was like uh, second to none. Um, and then when I looked at him as an athlete, I remember recruiting him off of his cross country stuff and then watching him run a mile at Texas relays and he got out kicked. Um, but he looked very fluid biomechanically and still ran, I think maybe like four thirteen, four fourteen, something like that. And I was like, this kid looks really good for, and he doesn't have any gear yet. Right. Mm-hmm. He didn't have mm-hmm. like, he was like the distance runner, like very good aerobic system, but like didn't have that fast gear. And then his freshman year, I remember throwing him into 800 and he ran like 157 or something like that. Ooh, and like, yeah. <laughs> and like flat out from the gun, you know, um, dead evened it flat out from the gun. And I remember, and I remember looking at like, okay, this is confirming things because like he doesn't have that gear yet, but his biomechanics, like, and the way he runs told me that, like, this is something that could be developed. You know, he was never going to be a, um, you know, a, a, a 147-800 runner with 47-second 400 speed. But it was something where I was like, this kid has the aerobic system and efficiency to be able to run really well. He's got the attitude. And I said, I think I'm going to be able to develop this ability to where it's no longer there's there's no longer this kink in the pipe and then, and once we did that like I knew that like his aerobic system his efficiency and his just competitiveness would take over and you know sure enough that's what happened I mean his senior year he ran one eight hundred and ran one fifty two low indoors you know mm-hmm. he ran on the four by four his junior year I think he split forty nine high fifty low and like that was a big development for him. And like, as I saw those progress take, you know, going on, I was like, Oh, you know, and then his, you know, his, um, seeing his fourth year, he ran three fifty eight in the mile indoors. Um, and I was like, okay, like this is now, now he's at a point where he can compete with others in the steeplechase for a national title, because he's got this capability combined with, you know, I, you remember this. I think his his soft his junior year maybe like he went out to to Stanford. I think it was and ran mm-hmm. a you know a very good looking twenty nine flat ten k. Right. Um, and like that's the thing that people didn't realize with Brian. Like he literally ran everything in college from the four by four all the way up to a track ten k. Yep. Mm-hmm. And. Part of that, you know, it wasn't all planned out like that, but like part of it was very intentional in the sense that like, hey, we need to develop these things if he wants to reach like the goals of how good he wants to be and how good like I thought he could be based on this stuff. So it was a great example. And, you know, it doesn't always work out this way, but, you know, here's a kid that that you know we that i helped get to the point where he was a regional champion cross or in 29 flat as a junior in the 10k um and then improved his speed at the same exact time that we were developing his aerobic system you know right and the thing was i think the main thing is 
you know, just quick little tangent here is you didn't starve him of competitive opportunities and situations that are outside or far outside his comfort zone. And, you know, that's the thing, right? Today it's really popular for high school coaches to be like, oh, we're just training through this race or, oh, there's just so many races you can't train. And it's like races are training even if the athlete is still under in a training block and they're under fatigue. You just express to the athlete, hey, look, you're getting fitter, but you're still fatigued, so you might not be able to express this time. But what we're doing this is we're not starving you of sharpening your competitive um, mojo or your competitive crucible. Like that competitiveness is so key. Like uh, I was down in San Diego for the U.S. Cross uh, championships recently. And, you know, Steve knows this and I know this about Natasha Rogers. Like when the girl, the woman is on, she is on. They're zoomed in, locked in. It's either you're going to have to chop off my leg or I'm going to win this race. And, you know, it's like when Steve was coaching her and, you know, you were just befuddled why she was only running like 920 indoor in 2017. And then you had this long come to Jesus heart to heart. And then 2017 outdoor, the woman was on fire. Just every race was like, I'm here to eat your face <laughs> or die trying. Like it was amazing the amount of drive she had PRs in the 10, you know, winning the US title in the half marathon, PR in the 5K, almost making a world team in the 10, like in tough conditions in Sacramento. Like, I mean, goodness gracious, we sometimes discredit the amount of competitive mojo you must have to be to translate all your training and take advantage of that opp- the opportunity that all your hard work has set you up for. And so that's really important too, is not starving athletes of the competitive crucible and competitive experiences, even though it might not sync up with your plan and your developmental horizons for that season, even though you might think it might sacrifice them. No, it doesn't. It actually in the long run makes them a lot better because it gets to the core about why we worry so much about all this programming and training is to be competitive. But the the best way to get more competitive is be put in more competitive situations, which is for us, thankfully, very easy. It's called racing. Exactly. You know, I couldn't agree more. And, and that's a great, great place in it is the fact that I do think that what we've taken from the pros is often in the college and high school is this restricted racing Right. Yeah. Not a fan of that at all. Yeah. (laughs) Only showing up when you're ready to go is what I call it. And when you, when you do that, that, you know, maybe some pros can handle it because they spent all of high school and college racing. Right. So they, they're, they're used to it. Um, but like if we start doing that at the college level and especially at the high school level, we, we create this fragile, uh, entity that only wants to show up when they feel good um feel good and everything's clicking or are in their comfort zone in a race and one of the things like regardless if you're a top athlete on my team like brian or someone who's a walk-on like one of the things that i really push and emphasize is we're gonna try different events and we're gonna we're gonna do different things and you you just gotta embrace it you know um my 800 runners all run at least one or two cross country races, even our, our four, eight types who, you know, <laughs> who hate it, but like at, they get an appreciation for it. You know, one of our kids, um, who last year as a freshman ran one fifty for us, um, in the 800, um, 
ran cross country for the first time this fall as a sophomore. And, you know, he struggled, but he tried it. He, he ran two races for us. He put his effort in, but like he walked away saying like, man, I appreciate so much like what you distance guys go through. And it's like increased my appreciation for it. And I'm mm. taking away a lot like on what it means to train for cross country that like will help me get through, through track. And he started off the track season really well. And, you know, I, I think that that understanding and appreciation is huge and that the same side, like I'll stick our distance guys in four by fours and eight hundreds. And last week, or two weeks ago for our indoor opener, we ran practically every 5K guy in the mile. Why? It was outside of their comfort zone. It was the first race and the instructions were simple. Like, I don't care about time. Just like compete your ass off and let's see what happens. Because nice. when you're outside of your, your comfort zone in racing, like it shouldn't be scary of like, oh, I'm going to look like I suck. It should be freeing in the sense like, hey, like this doesn't matter quote unquote as much like let's take it to the well and see what's there and like, just go for it. And that translates over when you're back in your specialty that translates over and gives you the capacity to do the things like you saw of an Natasha Rogers, which is just relentless, like racing without mm -hmm. like fear. Right. And that's, I think it's important for us coaches to frame what we esteem. And if you're framing that times matter, perfection matters, and, you know, the coaching activity for you is a, a proof of your intelligence or uh, superiority as a, a programmer or coach to other coaches and that athletes always have to run fast when they show up, you know, I, I think you're, you're, you're losing the plot here, right? Like, so athletes, professional athletes have real, real life consequences like contracts renewed or not renewed based on their uh, level of competency when they do compete. So they have to be aware of those things. There's real life consequences for high school and college coach or athletes as well for lack of competition because they start to develop that perfectionist mentality, right? That, that curated, that, um, filtered Instagram mentality when it's like, well, I'm only showing off my, my best pose or my best side or my best race. And everyone needs to be the best. Cause if it's not the best, uh oh, something's wrong with me. If I'm not getting better every week and faster every week, something's wrong with me. No, there's nothing wrong with you. Failure is a really important part of sport. Failure and learning how to deal with it and be motivated by it and bounce back, super important. Or as Steve said, uh, just being competitive and going for it, regardless of time or place, that matters too. And the best coaches I, I know frame competitiveness over um, time trials or, or competency of speed or pacing uh, because they understand at the end of the day, the core element of the activity that we're praying for is to compete and uh, be challenged and challenge other individuals. You know, I'll give one last example here. In 2018, at the end of the UP men's cross country season, at the team meeting, you know, like where they gave out like kind of the informal awards, coaches awards, what have you, or recognition, there was a lot of really compelling high-level performances by guys during that cross season. Nick Hogger, who's now with uh, NAZ Elite, he had won uh, the WCC tiled, he, title. He had won the uh, West Regional title individually, leading you know leading those guys um, uh, to another NCAA trophy, top three. But 
Other guys had really amazing performances as well all throughout the year. The person Rob picked for performance of the year, or race of the year, as he called it, was this walk-on um, named Shugard. And Shug, like, he was a guy who wanted to be on the team his freshman year but wasn't good enough. So Rob's like, hey, get faster, get better, run some open races, like prove, you know, that you're really serious. Because, you know, he just wasn't a guy that was at the caliber of, uh, you know, uh, what UP has now set as their standard of excellence. The guy did it his freshman year. He made himself into a guy who got a formal invitation and walked on because he proved himself. He trained his butt off. He's running all the time. He'd come in and ask, you know, Coach Connor for some little pointers here or there, but Rob wasn't really coaching him. But he showed that that resolve. And then he continued to improve for himself and demonstrated in local races or, you know, JV races, if you will, this just competitive drive to be the best him and not give an inch like you know in the last phase of a race whoever he was around in that pack that guy wanted to beat those guys and we're talking mid-pack you know at just local races not even these highly publicized national class races or invites right that everyone esteems but rob astutely understood and saw that competitive spirit and my number 25 man has that and also that infects my number one man, my number two man. And I'm going to champion that because that is what matters, right? That's why the pros are pros. Those are competitive. Like Steve and I have coached these pros and we're going up against other pros. They're competitive, competitive people in the right circumstance, not who has the most followers on social media or who had the most likes, who beat who. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. And that's the thing we should esteem is understanding like, as a coach, you, you know, get a return on what you esteem to your athletes. So frame the correct thing at the correct period in their development for the level that you work with. And you can take pride and uh, take uh, and be happy for their continued success that they'll enjoy for, you know, not only the seasons after you, but the years or decades after you've worked with them. Yeah, I couldn't set it better. So, that you know, take that into consideration. Those are some great examples and stories. And as as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you're looking at how to do all this complex stuff of coaching and take a more long term coaching solution, well, I've got the thing for you. It's called Final Surge because it allows you to simplify all your training and coaching decisions. And I'm serious, it does. So that you can think about these things on a grander scale and also map it out over long term on on the uh, actual app um, and all that stuff. So if you want 10% off, use on coaching. Links will be in our show notes. And thanks again, everybody for listening. Um, we really appreciate it. And, and until next time, good luck in all your coaching. <laughs>